0: program associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Jesse Driscoll, an associate professor of political science at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. You say Ukraine is engaged in a civil war. Why not just the word invasion? That's the word used in the 2017 Trump national security strategy after all. Well, yeah, that word is used in the 2017 National Security Strategy, and if we wanted to be uh, speaking completely, I think that it is both an invasion and a civil war, but I think focusing on the parts of the conflict that could be resolved through public diplomacy, which are basically the parts of the conflict that involve the Donbass, and keeping those analytically separate from the parts of the conflict that can't be solved easily, um, involving uh, an invasion, to use your words, a homecoming, to use the words of the Kremlin, in Crimea. There we got really different narratives, uh, very different assumptions built into the stories that people tell each other, and it's just going to be very hard for profession, professional diplomats to resolve it. In the Donbass, I think what we actually see is some place where uh, both Russian-speaking and English-speaking and Ukrainian-speaking professional diplomats could agree on the basic facts of the case, and I think civil war is a good descriptor of those facts. So in particular, after Crimea, after Maidan, both of which are difficult to describe, uh, so let's say after, after March of 2014, here's some basic facts, and I, I think these are facts. I don't think that these are disputable uh, in, in their essence. There was uh, period in which pro- and anti-regime militias formed, and these militias then clashed with one another. The clashes that took place revealed that the anti-regime militias didn't really have the capacity to seize and hold state buildings for more than a few hours, mostly. The permanent exceptions to this were in the eastern Donbass region, where you have the regional administrations held in two different oblasts, and the, eventually politics that come out of that lead to the formation of two different stable militia coalitions, one of which today we call the Ukrainian Army and one of which today we call the Secessionist Rebels, in shorthand. And we all basically use the same shorthand. Fighting between them conventionalized and escalated, uh, Russia intervened overtly in late August, basically freezing the battlefield, although before that, in fairness, they had intervened covertly. They had sent anti-air weapons, for instance, probably, and f- certainly they had fired artillery properly from across their interstate border. But. Um, you take all of these dynamics and you roll them together and they look very familiar to academics who study civil wars, their bottom-up dynamics. Um, the basic definitions that those of us who work in this space use for civil war tends to be fairly clinical and precise. You have a thousand people dead and a hundred dead on the government side, which you have. Stathis Kalivas says that the Armed combatants have to live within the boundaries of a recognized sovereign entity between parties subject to a common authority at the outset of hostilities certainly meets that. And uh, importantly for anyone who might be listening out there and wondering if I'm shilling for the Kremlin, the claim is obviously not that Russia was not involved in any of these processes. I think there was probably a lot of Russian government astroturf and certainly the invasion of Crimea. I don't think invasion is necessarily the wrong word. The point is that in civil war studies, there are numerous examples of civil wars that draw in great powers or begin as insurgencies and then turn into something that looks like a proxy war. And if you try to make a list of all the civil wars that have broken out since 1945 that have no foreign intervention at all, your list gets very short, very fast. Can you be more specific about what problems are illuminated analytically by the term civil war that aren't illuminated by the term invasion? Yeah, sure. We don't really have invasion studies in political science, and so we don't have any robust findings in terms of what makes some invasions more or less likely to be rolled back or worked. Territory doesn't change hands very much, and part of the reason that the Article II violation that took place in Crimea is such a big deal is that arguably the whole UN Charter is there to illuminate the violation itself, but once there's a violation, all we can say is there's a violation. There's no more social science to be done. Compared to Compare that to civil war studies where we actually have thousands of very, very smart professors on the tenure track, graduate students who are aspirationally on the tenure track, thinking hard about the conditions of civil war settlement, what makes civil wars likely to be settled or unlikely to be settled, and there's really a robust set of conversations that take place. That bounds a very useful set of evidence-based policy prescriptions that suggest that Ukraine's civil war, if we're again just focusing on the Donbas, might actually be ripe for resolution so a couple of stylized reasons why that might be the case. First off, compared to other civil wars, it's been comparatively clean. There have been about 10,000 deaths, about 6,000 military deaths, and 4,000 civilian deaths that have resulted from the conflict. The war fighting is overwhelmingly conventional. There's heavy weaponry deployed symmetrically, so you're basically seeing a theatrical reenactment of World War II with shells falling on other shells. But civilians are left out of it. It's a very, very different set of dynamics than you see in uh, Yemen, in Syria, in Chechnya. Certainly different kinds of treatment of civilians than you see in places like Bosnia. So, knock on wood, that persists. Uh, The second thing is that we don't have hardened ethnic divisions. Um, Before this podcast, you and I were looking at some interesting maps on my computer, and um, you can see that you're actually having a lot of people living in Novorossiya who speak Russian at home, who are fighting on the front lines against what they perceive as a Russian invasion, um, against the secessionists. This is not a case of all of the Russians rising up against the ethnic Ukrainians, which I think is probably what um, some people in the Kremlin believed was going to happen post-Maidan. Not at all. What you actually have is a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who are inoculated against the Kremlin's media and demonstrate their Ukrainian patriotism by actually martyring themselves on the front lines. There's a very, very different war than I think people believed was likely in early 2014. More important than that, it has made all Ukrainians, not just Western Ukrainians who... Um, speak Ukrainian proudly, but Russian-speaking Ukrainians as well feel like they are part of a um, common nationalist project. The entire country, the center and the east, have gotten more Ukrainian in ways that can be easily measured with surveys and stuff. Um, This hasn't hardened the ethnic divisions, even if it has hardened the interstate friction between Ukraine and Russia, Um, which has hardened, by the way. I think that Mike McFaul was totally prescient when he said that with Crimea, this is a pawn for a queen, that they get um, in exchange for Crimea, Russia has probably lost Ukraine for a generation. I think Mike McFall saw that exactly right. The third reason that the civil war might be ripe for settlement is that there are really a lot of different uh, policy prescriptions that, as I said, that the social scientific community has uh, found empirical evidence for that suggest that this would be a good place for a very large, very well-funded uh, OSCE electoral observation mission, and the OSCE is the perfect agent here, um, not only because it's a consensus organization where most of the stakeholders have vetoes, um, but also because they're great at election monitoring. Oh, dear, election monitors um, are state-of-the-art. They're very, very good at this stuff. Um, when people in the Donbass hold their own election, as they did a couple of months ago, no one recognizes it. It needs to be an election, probably not a very competitive election, that uh, is validated with the help of the OSCE, and since an election is scheduled in 2019 anyway for Ukraine, I think we should just do it all at the same time. That's the, that's the basic advocacy. None of that emerges. Not one little bit of what I just said emerges from the language of invasion. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me.